are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, happy Sunday. Uh, happy third week of Advent. And so, yeah, whoop, whoop. Yeah, celebrating, uh, you know, the first coming of Jesus, our Savior, all that good stuff. You know what I mean? We're going to go ahead and move forward into our time in the Word Uh, continue our time in worship today. By spending some time in God's Word, we're obviously continuing our series in Advent. We're really just connecting into the historic church calendar, preparing our heart to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, uh, where really we get the foretaste of glory divine, right? That's an old school lyric, where we get this foretaste of what life everlasting and life and the world made right are in the birth of this beautiful child. But also, as we celebrate that, we rest in uh, the reality that's not where the end of the story lies, but that we look forward to a second coming uh, where he comes back to forever and eternally and finally make everything right. And so we anticipate that and we think through how to live in that in-between time, the space where we have received the king in his first coming, but that space where we now anticipate the king in his second coming, how do we live then, right? That, that's what we're kind of working through over these past few weeks. And we started uh, a few a couple weeks ago now uh, thinking about some of the basics of waiting, right? What, is, what are some of the basics we need to think about? And the fact that there's a story that we want to plug into uh, and really thinking through how can we plug into that and use our gifts in order uh, to serve that story by serving our king. And so in, after that, we kind of walked through last week what waiting looks like. And this week, we're actually going to kind of slide into kind of aligning with what the Advent kind of calendar looks like and talking about joy. Uh, joy is a bit of a tricky, a tricky topic um, because we sing about joy, right? Uh, that was my kids watching a child show. If you know the sound of the PBS app, that's what that was. Um, <laughs> um, we, we, we sing about joy during the season, right? We sing songs literally like joy to the world, right? Like we sing about joy during the Christmas season. But the thing is, during this season of human existence, joy is actually a little bit hard to come by, right? And things have gotten a little bit better, but if you think about the fact that there's been so much going on in the world, we had a pandemic that happened, obviously, and started last year. We're kind of still in that, hopefully at the tail end of that. Then uh, the, the reality of racial injustices kind of boiled right up uh, to the surface last summer. Uh, right now we're working, uh, like, like kind of the, the, the world is working through what happened in Kentucky just like this week when we saw tornadoes ravage hundreds of miles. Uh, dozens of people feared lost in that. Right? We look out into the world, and right now, because you're not able to tap into all of the regular rhythms that you are accustomed to, or maybe that, that the rhythms we've adjusted to during the pandemic have left us in a place where we notice these things more, we're faced with these realities. And even though joy is something we sing about in this season, if we're being honest and if we're being real, there's still some, there's still some burden on our joy. Right, if you think about this uh, NORC at the University of Chicago. It's a nonpartisan, independent uh, research firm. In early 2020, right after, right after the uh, the pandemic started, right, thinking about like May, that type of time. In the group of people polled, only 14% of people recorded a response of being very happy. That was down 38% from the year prior. 38%. That's crazy. That's wild. We've had some struggles with joy. All of us have had struggles with joy. 
You add the Christmas season that though we talk about joy and though we sing about joy, this season actually does create a bit of sorrow for some people that adds to the struggle that already exists to, to, to tap into joy. And all of a sudden you have a moment in time, right, that can be actually quite sad. And though we sing about this idea, and though we long for this feeling, and though we long for this contentment, right, sometimes it can be kind of evasive, be kind of challenging a bit of a hard spot. Yet scripture seems to cast a vision about joy that would fly in the face of these ideas. Vision seems to cast a vision about joy that seems to contradict everything that I just said. How does that work then? What does it mean? How do, why is that? And, and if, it, if scripture casts a vision for joy that seems to be so con- contradictory to everything we're experiencing, what is the Right, what is the common denominator that's making that happen? Why is it contradictory? Is scripture not true? And am I not true? And what is what is what's going on? Right, these are the things that we want to think through. These are things that as believers and followers of Jesus, I think we kind of need to think through. In the challenges that the world is facing, we're called, again, as we've learned through the past few weeks, not to just be idly standing by waiting for the second coming, but instead to be participators in a story of redemption and of rescue and of love that interjects us into the fray of the world, but sets us apart as these people saved and redeemed and known and loved by God. Right? What does it mean for those people to find joy, his people to find joy in the midst of a time when joy seems hard to come by? That's what we want to think about today. That's what we want to take a look at. And we want to do it by, by taking a look at three specific ideas. You know, I'm going to be honest, I kind of hate three-point sermons because they're like the classic sermon. You got to use three points. I usually like to use like two, maybe four, just to try to be an abnormal person. But today I got three. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to take a look at these three things. The first is what is joy? The second are the threats to joy. What are the threats to joy in and the third is the anchor of joy. Okay, and so to do this, we're going to be taking a look at two of the verses we read, uh, which is Luke's, I mean, not Luke, I'm going to do that multiple times today, just so you know. John 16, 20 through 22, we're going to work from there. Okay, so if you would join me in reading those two verses, okay, we're really going to work from these two verses. We read everything before, kind of to set some context, but this is kind of the, the two verses we're going to be really working from. Verse 20 starts like this, truly I tell you, You will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, so before we dive into thinking through some of those ideas, we got to set the stage a little bit because we've talked about this before, right? The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written. All right, that's good. That's good. We're making a little headway with that one. I appreciate that. All right, so understanding the context really tends to unravel the, the meaning and the intention of what the scriptures are really trying to get at for us. And, and here what we have to think about is that uh, Jesus isn't just talking about joy abstractly. He's talking about joy as it pertains to his death and resurrection. He's not talking about sorrow abstractly. He's talking about sorrow as it pertains to his joy 
and his resurrection, oftentimes in a text like this, you look at it and actually start to think that maybe uh, every single sorrow will turn to joy. And while that may have some truth to it, that's not what this is actually talking about. Jesus is looking at his disciples, uh, a group of young men who had followed him for years at this point, who had left behind family and and, and their, their social norms and their cultural expectations and, and really their livelihood and their futures and had followed this Jesus for years at this point. And now Jesus is looking at them basically being like, I'm going to be going away soon. Uh, but they're probably looking at Jesus like, but we're following you because we thought you were the Messiah. And, and so when we're looking at you, we're banking not just our futures, but the future of like our people on you. And, and, and he's looking to be like, yeah, no, I got that. Um, but I'm going to be going away soon. It's like, dude, what are, you, what are you talking about? That's why in verse 16 uh, through 18, they're looking at you like, this dude's talking crazy, right? And it's like, well, what are he's saying we're gonna, uh, he's going to go. Where's he going to go? I don't know. But then he's saying we're going to see him soon. So they're looking at each other. They're kind of be like, what's happening? And that's why Jesus comes back in and responds. And he's like, are y'all asking yourselves what's going to happen and why I'm saying the things that I'm saying about how I'm going to leave? But then I'm going to come back and you're not going to see me, but then you will see me. And that's when he jumps into this space of saying, truly, I tell you. Right, which anytime you see Jesus bring out the truly I tell you, right, old school verily I say unto you, right, like, like anytime you see that little, that little caveat, it means like I'm fixing to drop some bombs on you, and, and I'm going to really bring you into what we're talking about here and what I'm trying to get you to understand. So he comes in and starts telling them, you're going to become sorrowful, right? You're going to hurt. And he was letting them know that what you're banking on right now is not what the future holds. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be basically ripped um, apart. And you're going to see me walking a path of criminals and outcasts. And then I'm going to take the cross and I'm going to die. And in that moment what feels like all of your future and all of your dreams and everything you banked on is going to be gone like that. And you're going to be sorrowful. It's a beautiful example of a loving God, a loving father, a loving leader, looking at those who, was fo- who have followed him and simply saying, I want to prepare you. I lovingly want to let you know what's going to happen. But the story's not over there. He says, man, but that sorrow, it'll turn to joy. It'll be like a woman who's in labor. And hear me, I don't know what labor feels like, but I know what labor looks like. (laughs) Having had two children, I can tell you what labor looks like. It's quite an intense moment. For my wife, not so much sometimes. It was a little weird the first time. She kind of just went, "Mm." and it was like, we got to the hospital and they were like, you're going to have a baby. And I was like, she's going, mm. That's all she's doing. All the videos, they were like screaming. And my wife has basically just spent four hours being like, uh, I'm uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden they're like, dude, that baby's coming like in a, two hours or so. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. So the first time, thinking a great example of labor. The second time, I got a good example of labor. All right, I got a good example. Jude, like everything else in Jude's life, he was like, I'm going to come through with a bang and I'm going to bring y'all some emotions with it. So I was an inside joke. I'm getting frustrated about my children. Forgive me. Yeah, let's move on. So what I'm getting at, though, is... That, that aspect of labor where, where there's some yelling and there's some sorrow and there's some pain. 
uh, I, I love kind of those movie scenes that I've never seen it because uh, we didn't do like the all natural type of thing. But when when women do the all natural type of thing, and in the the movies they're like, oh, give me the give me the thing, give me the thing, right? The epidural. It's like give me the epidural, and they're like, it's too late. She's like, it's not too late, right? Like there's this intense pain, this intense sadness, intense sorrow, but then that gives way to this immense joy. That I can't fully understand because I, don't, I didn't understand the sorrow. But I remember the time that I saw my daughter for the first time when I became a dad for the first time. And I looked at that baby and my heart just something happened. And, and I can only imagine for my wife who went through that process to look down and say, man, this is what my labors were for. But this end, it, it goes from sorrow and then turns to joy at the sight of this thing and so he tells them yeah you're you're going to experience sorrow but that sorrow when you see me again is going to give way to a joy and then he brings in this extraordinary piece where he looks and says not just joy but it's going to be a joy that no one can take away from you that no one can take away from you it's a powerful proposition to be like you're fixing to suffer but you're going to receive joy and that's going to be a joy that no one will ever be able to take, that will never be able to be rocked, that you will never be able to, to get robbed of. Like, and in a culture where they didn't have ADT alarm systems for their house, the idea of getting robbed was a big deal. The idea of someone taking something, the idea of, of a random major world power just strolling into your city that day and deciding, this city's now mine, is something that these people that he's talking to literally experienced or at least their, their fathers and their generations past it experience, and the Romans come to just being like, this is ours now. So the thought of Jesus looking at you and saying, I'm going to give you something that no one will be able to take from you, no one will be able to steal from you, was a powerful thing. It's a powerful proposition. And even now, as we look at it from our own day, it's confusing. It's hard to understand. When you read it, it shouldn't be like, that makes complete sense. Because if that's your life, then, man, you've had a charmed life. And if that's the case, the moment hardship hits you, you're probably going to learn that the rest of the people that were looking at the phrase being like, how does that work? We're actually right. Because it's confusing. It's hard to understand. It's a weird idea that you could have joy that's just like it never goes away. And no one can take it. But yet that's what he's presenting us with. And so really to understand that, though, if we want to say, okay, I'm going to take you at your word and I want to follow what you're saying and I want to live in what you're telling me to live in, uh, we're going to have to take a second and break some things down, right? We have to do the precursor work. First, we probably should start with what is joy, right? If, if joy is something that seems to be able to, to just be given to us and then Jesus is saying that we can never, uh, it can never be taken away from us, what is this thing that he's giving us? I, I appreciated the way Lexham Bible Dictionary defined joy. It said, uh, joy is closely related to gladness and happiness, although joy is more a state of being than emotion, a result of choice. So, so something that is extraordinarily close to happiness or gladness, which is oftentimes uh, very confusing because you oftentimes either hear people believe that they're the same thing or you'll, tell people, like, you'll hear people say that they're like completely different and, and neither of which is true. They're very closely related. The feeling of happiness, gladness, the feeling of joy, yet, yet somehow related to making a choice and, and the state of being that you're in. Right? This, is, this is how this Bible dictionary defines joy. But, but to add another layer to that, there's two approaches to this idea in the Bible. In the Bible, there's really two views of, of that type of joy. First is that there's joy as a feeling. 
You see this in a text like Matthew 18, 13, where, where it says, and if he, talking about a shepherd looking for a sheep, truly I t- if he finds it, truly I tell you, uh, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. Right? We experience this all the time. Y'all know... Um, like a feeling that overcomes you, that has nothing to do with you, but you're met with gladness, and you're like, I like that. A lot of y'all know I'm a soccer fan, right? And, and my primary uh, team that I'm going to be following any given time of the year is called Arsenal. It's in London. Although I love Austin FC. It probably would have been a, a better, uh, more relatable uh, team to use. My real heart lies with Arsenal FC in North London. Now, um, I got to tell you, uh, yesterday morning, and when I say that I follow this team, let me add some context. I'm not like, yo, I, I watch it when I can, right? These games take place across the world, in London. And so sometimes when they're like, oh, yeah, we're kicking off around lunchtime, for us it means they're kicking off around 6 in the morning. And so you'll see me up at 5.30 getting ready, being like, I got to watch the game, right? Like the game's coming on at 6, I'm going to be up at 5.30. I'm going to get ready. I'm going to do then. My eyes are going to be crusty and such, but I'm going to be looking intently and watching. And it's so crazy because a lot of people downplay how fun soccer is, but soccer builds this immense amount of like, like just anxiety through about 45 minutes. It's just 45 minutes to 60 minutes of sheer anxiety. Uh, unless your team's good. But for us, 45, 60 minutes of just sheer anxiety. And then all of a sudden, a few passes get made. You're in open field. Your partner, your people you're rooting for, they knock one into the back of the net, and you pop off of the couch, and you just start screaming. My wife sees this happen all the time, right? She literally came yesterday and was like, you've been watching soccer all morning. And she was, and I was like, but it's so joyful because they happened to win 3-0 yesterday. I had a lot of joy. Each time that ball hit the back of the net, joy overcame me, and I was ready to get lit. I did get lit. I got up off of the couch. was like, I can't scream as loud as screaming then. But, you know, like, it's joy. That's joy. Joy is a feeling, right, to be overcome by that. And that may be silly, but that was joy. It was genuine joy, too, to see one nil, two nil, three nil. And I was like, four, four, four. They ain't give me four, but, but it was joy. So that's one way, right? The Bible approaches it as joy as a feeling. But then there's another way, which is joy as an action. This idea that Scripture does command us to have joy. It commands us to, to take joy, to, to have joy. You think of a text like Philippians 4.4, right? A lot of people know this text. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, when I was growing up, they used to read that text all the time when we were coming into church. It's a part of songs. Right? Rejoice. Make, make a choice to look at God and rejoice in him. Okay, God is good. He's beautiful. That makes sense. Man, I, I'm going to take joy in him. I know that. That's beautiful. But now, hold on. Let's stop here because I want to throw a wrench into this whole system right now. Let's look at something like Proverbs 5.18. Proverbs 5.18 says, let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure. That, that is another word, right? That, that's an original word for really to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. It's the, all right, there we go. I like that. That's an example to the men in the congregation right now. All right, to be like, yeah, that's right. Take, take, take joy. This author, right, the author of the, of the proverb, looking at young men and saying, I want you to take joy, to rejoice in the wife of your young life. That sounds easy on the surface until you realize that there's no contingencies built into that text. There's no contingencies built into that. It doesn't say rejoice in the wife of your youth when she's sweet to you or when she's worthy or when she's kind to you, right? Because as with most people, there will be moments when she is not kind to you. 
It, it, as with most people, there will be moments when your spouse or your significant other is not kind to you, is not nice to you. It's probably not worthy of you being nice to them if we're just using a sheer weighted system where it's like, I was nice to you 15 times and you were nice to me zero times, so now I don't got to be nice 15 times and you got to make up the 15. Right? Like, that's not the way it works. There's no contingencies here for that. In those moments when it seems unworthy, when it seems unhospitable, when it seems hard, the instruction is still to take joy in her, to find what's loving, what's good, and what's beautiful. Recognize God's sovereignty in placing you with that person by his design and recognize and look for, if you can't recognize, how God may be at work in your life through bringing you together with this person to work something in you, to to rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a gift, even when it feels like that gift is hurting you. And I want to make an asterisk here. As, as with anything, there's a line where, where you would start to consider something like abuse and, and in which there's no room to take joy in that. Right? I want to make sure we, we make that point. But, but this is not what, what this verse is talking about. It's talking about your standard, everyday, run-of-the-mill. My spouse is good or my spouse is really kind of kind of getting under my skin. And then from there to still be like, take joy in that. I'm not, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, um, but back to Arsenal. <laughs> um, if you don't know, Arsenal historically has been a legendary team. In 2003, 2004, it was the only team in the Premier League, that's the, the top division in London, uh, to go undefeated in an entire season, to never lose once. And this isn't like football where it's 16 games. This is like months. They basically take like a two- or three-month break in the summer, and the rest of the year they're playing. So this is, this is a lot of games to work through without losing one time. They drew a few times. They tied a few times. But they never lost up until about 2009 when they decided they're going to start losing profusely, a lot, several times, maybe even in one week several times. And so as a supporter, you start to have this moment where you're waking up at 6 a.m. and you're thinking to yourself, I'm waking up knowing that you're probably going to lose. But I'm going to watch you anyway. And when you do something nice, I'm going to celebrate the fact that you did something nice. And when you make a pass, I'm going to be like, that pass was awesome. I know we got killed like 5 nothing, but man, that pass was great. There started to be a bit of a like saying amongst the Arsenal football club supporters where it's like, man, I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm nothing if not faithful, all right? Like, I, you could guarantee I'm a faithful person because I've supported this club through the hard times. It seems funny, and it, it, it's just to be used as an example, but that idea of even in the midst of when it seems like it's not giving anything back to you, the choice that's made to say, I, I want to take joy in you. I will find what's worthy of praise. I'll find what's worthy of beautiful, what, what, what's beautiful. I'll find what's worthy of my adoration, and I'll invest in that and take notice of that. Even if it means I have to correct in other spaces, I'll, I'll take notice, right? This idea of finding joy in not just a spouse, but in anything in life, in, in our jobs or in our schoolwork or whatever the case may be for you, right? To take joy as an action. And you have that thought, you plug it back into the the text that we were looking at, and it starts to get a little bit more challenging. It's not as simple on the surface as you thought it was, because Jesus says again that when you see me, your sorrow will turn to joy, and that joy can't be taken away. As a feeling, 
Is it a joy that will not be able to be taken away? Yes, I believe that the disciples were elated to see Jesus and the realities that Jesus presented them with in his resurrection were enough to bring a feeling of joy that they could come back to over and over again that no one could take away from them. But joy is a choice as well? I think so. I think that Jesus was saying, I offer you joy as a feeling, but I also, in my resurrection, offer you joy as a choice that no one can take away from you. Right now, you might be like, what are you talking about, bro? What are you talking about? Because I get the feeling, but life is hard. Sometimes it's hard to choose joy in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my heartache, in the midst of my struggles, and and that doesn't really seem to make sense to me. I understand when something good happens and a feeling overcomes me, but the idea of finding beauty and finding joy in the midst of something hard, that seems very difficult, and I hear that, and it's a very reasonable thing to respond with. It's a very reasonable thing to feel. And in fact, we have to explore that, because if we don't, then, then we never get to the bottom of how to actually walk out this joy. Because it's not just that we get to walk and be like, oh, yeah, Jesus' problem is joy and it's that easy. There are very real threats to our joy. There are very real threats to our joy that are out there lurking around. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of threats to our joy. I'm going to try to categorize them in three ways here, and I'm going to see if we can cover as much ground as we can with those three ways. But the first thing that I want to present you with in terms of threats to our joy is the circumstantial threats to our joy the circumstantial threat, that your circumstances sometimes threaten your joy. When you've lost your job, you've lost work, right? And, and now you're suffering. You're thinking about what, what am I going to do financially? And so we've seen families. We know people, some of us, where, where eating was something of a privilege. And so giving food to your children or to your family and you not eating was the way you worked through the situation, right? Sorrow, it's easy to creep in in that moment. It's easy for sorrow to creep in in that moment. When the dreams you've had of your life and for your life really don't go the way you planned them to go. And now where you are in life is very different than where you thought you were going to be five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And now you're looking at life and thinking, what happened? And it seems like, like joy is, is kind of evasive, right? Or, or maybe we're in, where we are in life is exactly where our dreams were always kind of thought of, right? Like, this is my dream, and now I've got there, but now it feels like it's not as satisfying and as edifying as I thought it was going to be, right? We feel the weight of these things. You think about a verse like Proverbs 13, 12 that says, hope delayed makes the heart sick. Again, we know this, this threat, right? circumstantial threat, when the circumstances around us don't feel like they, they are able to give way to joy. And then there's the relational threat. Right? The relational threat, straight up. It's just when our relationships are bad, and it's a threat to our joy. Have you ever had this experience, right? You get into it with somebody, y'all are kind of tense, and all of a sudden you got this ball in your stomach that you can't get rid of because you're like, I know that person's mad at me, right? Like you felt this. Either you felt it or you were kind of a psycho. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. But it's, it's also true, right? This is just a consequence of empathy. Right? When we feel like we've maybe done something wrong or someone's done us wrong, we know we're not on good terms with somebody, and all of a sudden we just have this pit in our stomach. It just feels like a boulder is sitting there. This doesn't just happen with the spouse. It happens, man, with, with your friends. It happens with your roommates. It happens with your boss, with your coworkers. It happens with your parents. But this isn't necessarily the only thing in this category either. Right? This is also the threat that things like experiencing a loved one passing on bring. Right? Like, 
why is it that why is it sad when we experience the passing of someone we care about besides the reality that someone we love isn't with us anymore right this idea that we won't be able to share and enjoy in that person to be able to to hold them to hug them right that thought to say like man that is fighting against joy and it feels like it's hard to find joy in the midst of that but this is where our experiences with abandonment come in Right, the burdens we carry growing up without a parent, feeling like a parent or, or someone in our lives didn't love us, didn't want us. And so we walk around with this resentment or with this anger. Right? The, the relational threat is the brokenness, the reality of brokenness in, in our relationships. And it's a real threat to our joy. It hurts us. And some of us in here, I'm sure, are walking through some of those things like right now. Right? Some, some of us are walking through them right now. And these can be explicit, but they can also be very subtle. Right? But they really complement the last threat we have, which is like the internal threat. We have our circumstantial threat. We have our relational threat. But we also have our internal threat to joy. The internal threat is the feelings of shame, of guilt, of regret, of bitterness, of unforgiveness, of anger that we walk with. Some of us, for just, just for a season but some of us for a lifetime. Maybe, maybe these are motivated by how we hurt someone else, but maybe they're also motivated by how someone's hurt us. Regardless, we begin to build up these walls in order to keep people out, in order to keep even God at an arm's reach, because we think that these feelings will become our crutch. We think that these feelings will become our security blanket. They make us feel like I won't... I won't do that thing anymore if I can just hold on to this feeling of guilt and shame for long enough. If I can, if I can hold on to this feeling of just rottenness that I have, I, it'll keep me from hurting others. The guilt will stop me next time. This, this bitterness and unforgiveness will protect me from someone else hurting me. My anger will protect me from someone else hurting me. All the while, those walls that we build up thinking they're going to protect us in the end actually just imprison us. They actually just imprison us. They stop us from experiencing life, experiencing love, experiencing joy, experiencing God. Right? Our internal threats, our heart and our mind, that little voice that just comes in and starts spinning lies in our hearts and in our head. These are the threats to our joy that we, we live with. And, and hear me. Again, I try to just use three categories that I felt like could get the broadest reach. There are probably a ton more that you know that are yours. They just weren't mentioned here because I haven't experienced them yet, but maybe you have. These are very real threats. We know them. We grow comfortable with them. We accept some of them. And we just walk through life with them. And then we look at these threats these realities, and we look back at a text like Jesus saying, and when you see me, you'll have joy that no one can take away. What? How could you make that claim? How can you make a claim like joy that can't be taken away by anyone or anything How? But friend, this is where understanding the anchor of joy 
really helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Right? Take a look at verse 22 again. It says, So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. Look at what it says. Look at what it's talking about. Look at what the focus is. Where's the turning point? What is the turning point at which joy goes from fleeting to constant? Where joy goes from from vulnerable to secure, right? What is it that 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 turns on? It's not the job and it's not the dream. It's not the relationships. It's not even being freed from the internal workings of our heart. It's Jesus. He's the anchor of the joy. He's the anchor of the joy. How? Well, friend, because it's only in Jesus where we begin to look at the ultimate example of how someone would take their circumstance and exchange them for us. When he left glory in order to enter into the brokenness of our world so that we who walk and and have to live in brokenness could receive the hope of glory. Right, it's Jesus who relationally sacrifices and gives himself and tearing his his earthly body away from, from connection and relationship with the Father so we who are spiritual orphans could now be found as sons and daughters of God. Right, it's, it's, it's Jesus, it's Jesus who on the cross takes on the regret and the shame and the guilt onto himself so that we who are guilty and we who are bound to that pain can now be freed and made new and forgiven, right? Jesus is the anchor of the hope because it's in Jesus that the hope we so desperately long for, the joy we so desperately long for is securely found in what he's done, not in what we've done. In what he's taken on, not in what we've taken on. What he's gone through, not what we've gone through. We look at him and understand the deepest longing of my heart relationally is found in you. The purpose that I so deeply long for is found in you. Right? The the freedom internally that I so deeply want is found in you. It's why when he appears to these disciples, they don't just cry because they're seeing their master or their discipler or whatever the case is back again. It's because they see him and recognize that the new day has dawned. Where brokenness and darkness and pain and bitterness and guilt now are forcefully relieved of their grip over us, not because we have demanded it, but because he has purchased it. Right? Even look at the text. The way he says it is not when you see me again. It's, but when I see you again. When I see you again, what what you long for will have been cemented in who I am and what I've done. Right, you, you will love me because you will realize that I first loved you and loved you enough to go to the cross to free you. Right, the freedom you will, you will have will be because I've, I've given it to you. The joy you will have will be rooted and found in me. What a beautiful piece of good news, friends, that the reason this joy is not able to be taken from us is because it exists outside of us. But we get to take it and receive it and make it ours. That's the beauty of this good news. Friend, let, 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 me, let me tell you, let me just level with you. It's this good news that enables us to look at the broken relationships that we've lived in and say, those don't define who I am. My, my abandonment, the people that have left me, they don't define who loves me because I have a heavenly father who's made a way for me through the, the death and resurrection of his own son. Right? It's also 
It's also that relational freedom that allows us now to walk in grace and forgiveness and say, I'm going to do all I can to reconcile the relationships that are wrong, knowing that what happens in those relationships, again, doesn't define me. Though now I'm called to, to make them as whole and healthy as I can. Right? It's only through that reality of Jesus that the internal workings are now forgiven because I no longer have to walk in the shame and, and pain that, that this life has dealt out to me. Right? What a beautiful gift. And the most beautiful part is it's not based in the idea of saying, well, nothing I did was wrong. It's by looking at everything we've done that's wrong and saying, I know that that's true of me, but someone has forgiven me. And I know that I'm loved because I've now been seen and everything that I've done wrong is on the table. But this Jesus has picked it up and said, it's mine because you're mine. Right? What, what absolute beautiful news. But that's why the joy is found in him. That's why he's the anchor of the joy. That's why it can't be taken away, because nothing you do can change what he's done. Nothing you feel can change what he's accomplished. Right? What beautiful news. When you look at the baby in the manger, sorry to John, when you look at, at the story that's in front of us with Christmas, when you look at the reality of what it means for Jesus to come back and to make things right, do you understand that who you are and what you're going to be it's so completely wrapped up in that story that everything you hope for is there, that everything you long for is there, that everything you, you wish was there. Right? That, that, that's what this Jesus has done. The pains you wish didn't exist, the pain of them will, will be like a woman who's gone in labor, who felt them for a moment, but whose joy was so immense they forgot the pain even happened. When we understand these things, that's when we begin to understand why Jesus' words are so powerful. Why the joy he invites us into is so overwhelming. And why it's what he desires and longs for us to have. Not just saying like, hey, come try to walk in this, but to enter into the brokenness of the world to ensure that we would receive it and know it and it would be secure forever. How are you doing walking in that joy? Let me ask you something. The, the threats that are at work, right, charging at your joy, trying to take it. Right, let me ask you, and you don't, don't feel bad about this if you feel like you don't know. How are you responding to them with the good news of who Jesus is? How are you, how are you confronting them, right, with the good news of what he's done? And how his love, his adoption of us, right, his life, his forgiveness now looks, speaks to those threats and say, your blade is dulled. You no longer have the threat that you once had because the joy that I walk in is secured in this person. How are you responding with the good news of who Jesus is against those threats? Friend, the to the measure that we can answer that is the measure that we'll walk in joy. Because the more we shift the joy into what we've done, the less joy we'll experience and the more vulnerable our joy will be. But the more joy we shift onto what he's done, the more joy we walk in, the more free we'll be. That's the goal of how Jesus longs for us to walk in this in-between space. Right? The already but not yet. The spot in between his first coming and his second. That's what we're doing here, is learning about the joy that we've received in Jesus. That's my hope that we would walk in.
Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the good news of what you've done in your son. That though the world around us would attack us, that though our own internal workings and flesh would attack us, that though the enemy of our souls would attack us and try to rob us of joy, would threaten us and make us believe that the joy we long for is unachievable and unobtainable, you enter into the story of humanity, but of each one of us as well, in order to proclaim that there's a new victor, that there's a new joy, that the world as we once knew it is no longer the world that we live in. And through the cross, now invite us to partake in that world, to partake in that new identity, to partake in, in, in the newness of life that you've now given us through Jesus. Thank you, Father, for what that looks like and what that means for our lives. Help us. Help us to tap into that by alleviating the pressure of producing joy from our lives and allow us to continuously now try to find it in you. And as we do that, Father, allow us to then see the beauty of our lives. Allow us to see the beauty of creation that you've put before us the beauty of, of the relationships we have and of the job that we have. Let your new life redefine the way we see our story and fill it with joy. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 